Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit Visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. you why there were so many police there. They wanted to see the girls in lingerie and Bill Clinton or Michael Milken or Arnold Schwarzenegger. They weren't there to protect and serve the law. They were doing it out of, like, Hollywood perversion. You know, it's all out of jealousy. The truth is, people in this town have been in this business their entire lives, and it took me one year, and I did it. By the time I was 26, I was burnt out. I won't make any boasts, but L.A. is in a recession. I put a lot of people through college, maybe. A lot of people got to go on with their careers. A lot of girls got to be who they really wanted to be. 
Heidi Fleiss. Drugs were part and parcel, the life and breath of what Heidi did. Everyone wants to make it seem so glamorous, but it was really very sordid. Most of the time, she or her girls were so drugged that they were barely able to make it up to the fifth floor of a hotel. Ivan Naj, producer. Previously on Heidi World, Heidi took over the world of high-end escorting from her mentor-turned-rival, Madame Alex, and became one of the most powerful people in Los Angeles through brokering sex for the city's most powerful men. Welcome to Heidi World. Chapter 5. Heidi's Empire, from the peak of the Hollywood Hills to the pits of despair, Heidi's maddening business takes off and crashes. 1992. Welcome back to Heidi World. I'm your host, Molly Lambert. The year is 1992. Heidi Fleiss is on top of the world. She is living quite literally at the peak of Los Angeles in her mansion on Tower Grove. She has 500 Heidi girls working all over the world, bringing back her 40% cut to her house. She has everything she'd ever wanted, a house in the hills of LA, power, respect, a reserved table at every hot club and restaurant in the city, and money beyond her wildest dreams. She has built her own brand. To a certain subsection of Los Angeles, the name Heidi Fleiss now represents glamour, sex, and exclusivity. I learned about the intricacies of deals, the power of sex, and how people like to be treated. I saw some people make a lot of mistakes driven by hubris, arrogance, bad manners, or all three. And I saw an opportunity, an opportunity for me. As long as I remembered what I had learned, success came relatively easily. But as time went by, I forgot. I got caught up in the lifestyle. I lost sight of the things that had made me successful. In Hollywood, glamorous facades tend to hide a darker reality. Despite appearances, everything is not actually perfect in Heidi World. First off, there is Heidi's own big mouth. She can't stop telling people who she is and what she does. She and her toxic on-and-off boyfriend, Yvonne Naj, have finally broken it off for good, and Yvonne Naj has a new 23-year-old girlfriend named Julie Conister. Yvonne and Julie are trying to move in on Heidi's business with a competing high-end escort business. Heidi is so furious at Yvonne Naj that she does the unthinkable. She makes up with Madame Alex. Together in May 1992, Alex and Heidi get Yvonne Naj charged with making threatening and obscene phone calls to both of them. The case gets all the way to jury selection before it's dismissed. Heidi is determined to get Yvonne in trouble somehow even though she knows that talking to media might shine light on her own extracurriculars. So, in 1992, Heidi Fleiss starts talking to a senior writer at Premiere magazine named John H. Richardson. Premiere was a gossipy movie magazine that ran snarky coverage about Hollywood, the box office, and studios. 
Heidi gives Richardson a huge scoop, telling him that Michael Nathanson, the president of production at Columbia, is being supplied with drugs and high-end escorts by her ex-lover, Yvonne Naj. She claims that Nathanson has allegedly even given Yvonne Naj a $25,000 production deal as a cover for drug and sex expenditures. When the journalist confronts Nathanson point-blank, he says he'd never made a deal with Naj. Now, Nathanson may not have made a direct deal with Naj, but he did make a deal in early 1992 with a producer named Brad Wyman, with whom he'd partied on a sailboat with topless girls and Yvonne Naj. Brad Wyman was a rich kid producer from Bel Air whose mom had been on LA City Council, a young playboy who came from privilege and partied with Hollywood Brat Pack bad boys like Charlie Sheen and Rob Lowe. He produced the cult classic Freeway and was also a producer on Oscar-winning movie Monster. Brad Wyman had become notorious for financing his own trip to Cannes to raise funds for a movie, streaking at the French airport and getting so wasted that he crawled on the floor at the Hotel du Cap, begging rich people for change. The movie, called The Dark Backward, got funded. After Nathanson and Wyman made a deal, Yvonne Naj was added as a partner. The production deal was for a company called Wyman Naj, and it had a Sony address and a Columbia Pictures phone number. The Wyman Naj production shingle produced only one movie, the prostitution slasher Skinner, starring former underage porn star turned mainstream screen queen Tracy Lords as a prostitute character named Heidi. I never got credit for producing 100 movies, for running Sony, for coming from the street, becoming the chairman. It was always negative. Hairdresser John. John Peters, film producer. Producer John Peters is another lifelong Hollywood hustler, a valley kid from Van Nuys who was an extra in the Ten Commandments at the age of 10, then became a celebrity hairdresser. Peters claims that his father was a Cherokee former Marine who ran a Hollywood diner. His mother came from an Italian-American family who owned a salon in Beverly Hills. When she remarried an abusive construction worker, John Peters ran away from home to live on the street in New York, making a living working in a burlesque house, dyeing pubic hair wigs. The prostitutes had red hair, red pubic hair, and red poodles. I made it so everything matched. He moved back to L.A. where he got a job doing hair on people's heads, on Ventura Boulevard in the San Fernando Valley. Like fellow celebrity hairdresser Jay Sebring, one of the victims of the Manson family murders along with his ex-girlfriend Sharon Tate, John Peters used hairdressing to become a well-connected player with Hollywood friends. As seen in Hal Ashby's film Shampoo, apocryphally inspired by Jay Sebring and Rodeo Drive hairdresser Gene Shackover, hip LA hairdressers like John Peters really do know everyone in town. He started romancing the Norwegian Olympic figure skater turned Hollywood pinup Sonia Henney, by this point a rich older woman, who gave him $100,000 with which to buy his mom's family's Beverly Hills salon. Like many people in Heidi World, John Peters was a born hustler. He had a specific genius for talking other people into doing things that would benefit him. 
John Peters allegedly started dating Barbara Streisand after working as a wig master on one of her movies, even though he was technically still married to another beautiful Jewish actress named Leslie Ann Warren, with whom he had a son. Great ass, great tits, great body. Barbara may have had her neuroses and insecurities, but getting men, the men every woman wanted, was not one of them. Peters produced the remake of A Star is Born, starring Chris Christopherson and Streisand, which was a huge hit. He got into producing by essentially schmoozing his way into Hollywood, all the way from Van Nuys, by dating Barbara Streisand, who gave him what some might call a vanity credit as a favor, although certainly John Peters would not call it that. Their partnership lasted 12 years, in which they may have been allegedly uh, open. Streisand turned down his proposals of marriage. She was probably the love of my life. Yeah, she was the most captivating, interesting, creative person I've ever met. I owe her. I will always owe her for giving me the life that I've had. He parlayed the huge success of A Star is Born into a continued career as a producer. In 1983, he had a hit with Flashdance, which led to a Warner Brothers deal that produced hits like Batman, Superman, and Rain Man. In 1989, John Peters and Peter Goober were made joint heads of Sony, with Sony paying half a billion dollars to get them released from their contracts at Warner Brothers. John Peters was supposed to co-produce a Three Musketeers remake with Wyman Nagy that got killed, allegedly because Heidi blackmailed Nathanson by threatening to leak incriminating phone calls unless Yvonne and Wyman Nagy lost the production credit. But the plausible cover story was that Disney had a competing version. John Peters called Heidi and told her to knock it off. Later, Heidi would tell Vanity Fair that John Peters was one of her biggest spenders. John Peters knew Alex for years. He was a huge client. He was the guy everyone went to when they wanted a girl. John Peters once threatened to kill a producer he found out tried to cast in Couch Barbara Streisand. Nevertheless, he himself was a serial sexual harasser, even if it didn't catch up with him until recently, when he was sued for sexual harassment in 2018, which caused the studio to take his production credit off of Bradley Cooper's remake of A Star is Born. So, back to Heidi's big scoop. Richardson ends up writing the story about Nathanson and Naj for Premiere magazine, but it gets killed before publication, presumably for legal reasons or because Premiere magazine doesn't actually want that level of smoke from the studios. So, instead... Richardson uses all the material and fictionalizes the saga of Heidi and Madame Alex in a serialized novel called The Blue Screen that runs in premiere instead. Meanwhile, there are also signs that Heidi's perfectly oiled machine is malfunctioning. Some Johns pose a threat to her business who unsafely practice kink play, like the cross-dressing producer whose too small lingerie almost cut off his circulation, or one famous producer with a penchant for extreme sexual sadism, whose name we can say because he is dead. You're not paying hookers to come. You're paying them to leave. Don Simpson, super producer. Don Simpson was a producer who became known as the face of Hollywood 80s excesses, particularly the nostril-based ones. 
Simpson was born in Seattle, grew up a strict Baptist in Alaska, moved to San Francisco where he did PR for an erotic film festival, then came to Los Angeles to work in film. He co-wrote director Paul Bartel's Gumball Rally movie Cannonball! Exclamation point, working his way up from exploitation film distribution at Warner Brothers to president of Paramount Pictures. He was fired from Paramount in 1982 for passing out on drugs during a meeting. He worked alongside Robert Evans, whose coke use in that period was so bad that fucking Don Simpson was the voice of reason. Evans believed he was a living legend. He would come in with his sunglasses and his black clothes. He would invite me over to his office and he couldn't sit at his desk for more than 10 minutes without going to his bathroom and re-emerging with a mountain of white substance all over him. Later on, when I got to know him better, I'd say, Bob, you can't go out in public with a fucking ounce of blow on your chest. He'd sit there and basically try to bribe me, said if I helped him with his project, he'd get me pussy. It drove me crazy. Not that I was any paragon of virtue, because he was so sleazy. Simpson eventually linked up with producer Jerry Bruckheimer, and together they produced the steelworker erotic dance movie Flashdance in 1983, which was a huge hit. Followed by dorm canon classics like Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, and Bad Boys, as well as flops like The Ref, which I love actually, and Days of Thunder. Don Simpson was the ultimate 80s man in Hollywood. He was famous for his hedonistic excesses and his box office successes. And like many Hollywood douchebags, he linked the two things in his mind. Simpson is cited specifically in Easy Rider's Raging Bulls as a reason for the downfall of the experimental character study bent of 1970s New Hollywood in favor of the big money, big swinging dick 80s. In Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, director Robert Altman recalls showing Don Simpson a reel of Shelley Duvall, who he wanted to cast as olive oil in his Popeye movie. So, uh, after the reel finished, Simpson, he stood up and he said, Well, I wouldn't want to fuck her. And if I don't want to fuck her, she shouldn't be in the movie. (laughs) I I was uh, appalled. Robert Altman, director. Simpson got testosterone injections and spent an alleged $60,000 a day on drugs alone. He had been an insecure, overweight child, and he molded himself single-handedly into his own warped vision of the ultimate Hollywood alpha male, the soulless producer who only cares about money, drugs, and his own dick. Amid the conspicuous consumption of rich people in the 80s, Don Simpson took wasting money on dumb, expensive shit to a new level. He bought a new pair of black Levi's to wear and throw away every day. Don Simpson had a terrifying modernist house in the hills of Coldwater Canyon, where he did a ton of coke and hired a lot of sex workers. He built a custom locker room with industrial showers specifically for the girls he hired. In his mid-80s to early 90s heyday, Don Simpson is allegedly one of Heidi's most prolific consumers and one of the few documented on the record as abusive, the record being the E! True Hollywood story about Heidi Fleiss. 
Don Simpson is into underage girls and violent sadomasochistic sex, and the younger, less experienced girls are not ready for the brutality that he enjoys inflicting on them. One girl is allegedly beaten so badly by Don Simpson that she thinks she's going to die, but is luckily able to escape the house onto the nearby street, which, by the way, is Mulholland Drive, a winding mountain road so scary and isolated there is an entire David Lynch movie about it. So yes, Heidi could have been sending some of her employees into a known snake pit for profit. It is possible she was exploiting some of the girls in her position as their employer, and even though I promised I wouldn't say it, I take that back to say, this is what a girl boss does in actuality, is exploit labor for capital like anyone else who's a boss, but with the pink veneer that suggests she's leading with a softer touch and uplifting other women along the way. There is no doubt that Heidi was a better person to work for than a violent pimp who beats you, but she was still a boss. Sex work needs to be decriminalized so that no sex worker can be exploited by someone who takes advantage of the fact that they are operating in a shadowy world where their employees might not even want to admit what they are doing. Of course, there's nothing wrong with doing sex work as a job, and that gets muddled with right-wing rhetoric about sex trafficking, which is something else, and survival sex work, which is also something else, to paint all sex work as bad and exploitative in a way that is somehow worse and different than every other kind of job. I'm not trying to excuse Heidi here. This is all very bad. However, sex work itself is not in any way inherently bad or immoral, and its critics like to hone in on the sob stories while ignoring all the stories of sex workers who didn't die, who didn't suffer from transgressing women's roles, who had sex for money and merely paid the bills. From Heidi's point of view, I'm sure she thought she was just serving the market. If gross men wanted underage girls, she would send them there. But she also could have said no. There were stories, too, that she was so confident she scouted strangers in all kinds of public places, including teenage girls at fancy boutiques. Any one of these could have gotten her in huge trouble. But, as with many of her riskiest escapades or gambles, Heidi got lucky, and she stayed lucky for a long time. But, as with any gambler's streak, it had to come to an end. When Heidi World returns, Heidi's high-end escort empire begins to crumble when snitches come out of the woodwork. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart.
Identity theft protection starts here. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool to the touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great too. With thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a Chill Mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on Chill Mattresses and get two free pillows iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024, so get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to Heidi World. All of Heidi's flirtations with disaster and fuck-ups might not have mattered had it not been for a few people who decided to rat her out to the cops for their own gain. One of them is a limo driver turned bodyguard named Art Natoli who works for Billy Idol. Heidi says Natoli is allegedly a scumbag who got mad because his girlfriend, a woman named Claudia Carnicella, started working for Heidi and lost interest in the relationship because the money was more exciting to her. Carnicella was pulling down eight grand a job with Heidi and bought herself a Corvette. This makes her ex-boyfriend furious, so Natoli snitches on Heidi to Glenn Ackerman, the LAPD chief of vice. 
But he is not alone in snitching on Heidi. Meeting Heidi for me was an answer to a short-term problem, which was paying my rent and putting food on my table. I really didn't want to be a prostitute. That was not my plan. Alexandra Daydig. Alexandra Daydig was an aspiring actress who'd worked for Heidi for a year. Like so many of the people in Heidi World, Daydig is another child of Hollywood, a second-generation actor. But aside from one credit in a college campus hijinks movie from 1946 called Sweetheart of Sigma Chi, her father, Fred Daydig Jr., appears to have mainly worked as a professional extra, albeit very steadily. A real veteran, he played a long line of uncredited roles as soldiers, bellhops, cops, and a theater usher twice in classic musicals like The Bandwagon and Singing in the Rain. He also wrote technical books about guns like The Luger. Alexandra Daydig was one of the four fictionalized protagonists of the 1996 book You'll Never Make Love in This Town Again, whose title was a riff on Julia Phillips' memoir about her coke-addled rise and fall as a Hollywood producer, You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again. You'll Never Make Love in This Town Again is the stories of three sex workers and an actress about Hollywood men's excesses and indignities. In the book, a fictionalized Daydig is written as an actress named Tiffany, although she sued the book's publisher over it. Alexandra Daydig's IMDb roster is slim, consisting of a reporter role in Pump Up the Volume and stand-in work on Naked Gun 33 and a Third, The Final Insult. Daydig was partying at the Rainbow Bar and Grill on Sunset when a drug dealer gave her Heidi's phone number and suggested she call. Daydig spoke to CBS News in 2013 about her year spent working for Heidi Fleiss. I was expected to have, most of the time, just a straightforward sex act. I was given designer drugs, I was given prescription drugs, a lot of cocaine. I was paid $10,000 a day, plus jewelry, plus first-class plane tickets. I was asked to go to a hotel. The client held my plane ticket and my money, and for three days, he would come and hit me on the head and pull out my hair. When he finished hitting me, he would leave the room. Daydig claimed she decided to drop a dime because she felt Heidi was becoming too obsessed with her own celebrity. But Daydig has since become a right-wing celebrity in her own right, who appears regularly on talk shows and led a failed effort to recall Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, who sucks but not for the reasons that she was trying to recall him. According to Daydig, Don Simpson ran a casting couch out of his mansion, where he auditioned actresses who needed work, convinced them to have sex with him for a role, and secretly videotaped the entire thing without their consent. After Daydig sold out Heidi, she became an anti-prostitution crusader who worked with groups that labeled all sex work as trafficking, a trend in right-wing politics that has only escalated since. You are not allowed to have long hair. You are not allowed to be too pretty. You are not allowed to wear too much makeup or be too glamorous because someone would fall in love with you and take you away. And then she loses the business. So after a year of working for Heidi, Daydig decides to turn on her and contacts a Beverly Hills detective named Sammy Lee II. This obviously pleases the other Alex, Madam Alex, who is still fuming on probation watching Heidi run the empire that she had built. Lee starts looking into Heidi's personal activities 
and Daydig becomes the Beverly Hills Police Department's personal informant on the case. The cops start assembling a task force across agencies to investigate Heidi. Law enforcement starts to believe that Heidi is mocking them by operating right under their nose. Unlike Madam Alex, who genuflected to the cops by giving them girls on the house and bribes, Heidi supposedly doesn't give the cops any kickbacks. So Sammy Lee from the Beverly Hills PD and Glenn Ackerman from LAPD team up and decide to make taking down Heidi Fleiss a top priority. I provided credit card numbers. I provided information on air flights, on phone numbers. Everyone knew he was a cop but me. I'm just the biggest sucker. I was so dumb. He said, can I pay with Pacalolo? And I said, no Pacalolo, no yen. That was abnormal for a legitimate business person to say. Either I had a terrible hangover that day or I came straight from the racetrack, but I wasn't too sharp. Beverly Hills cop Samuel Lee II is, of course, another second-generation Los Angeles kid with a prominent parent. His father, Samuel Lee, was a famous Olympic diver. Born in Fresno, California, to Korean parents who ran a restaurant, Sammy Lee I became obsessed with the Olympics when they came to nearby Los Angeles in 1932, when he was 12 years old. Lee's family moved to Los Angeles to the Highland Park neighborhood, where he found that he was only allowed to practice pool diving once a week in Pasadena on what was called, quote, International Day. This was code for segregation. International Day was the only day that Black, Asian, and Latino residents were allowed to use the public pool the day before the water was replaced. Because he had no regular access to a pool to train in, Sammy Lee practiced diving into a pit of sand. In 1942, Sammy Lee became the first person of color to win the U.S. National Diving Championship. At the 1948 London Olympics, he won a gold medal and a bronze, making him the first Asian-American man to win a gold medal for America. The elder Sammy Lee then joined the Army Reserves to pay for USC Medical School, where he became an ear, nose, and throat doctor. He advanced to the position of major in the U.S. Army's Medical Corps and thought he would be sent out for Korean War service. Instead, he was utilized for American propaganda on a larger scale and sent back to the Olympic Games, where he was told he was expected to win. At the 1952 Helsinki Olympics, he medaled gold. He was then sent to South Korea with the American Medical Corps in 1953 for a tour of duty. When Lee returned home to California in 1954, he found that even as a multiple Olympic gold medalist, a doctor, and a veteran who had demonstrated his American patriotism endless times, racist housing discrimination practices against Asians and Asian Americans persisted even and especially in the supposedly progressive state of California. Sammy Lee tried to purchase a house in the Orange County neighborhood of Garden Grove and was denied. Nearby residents drew up a petition against Sammy Lee moving into, quote, their neighborhood, and he moved elsewhere. He married a woman named Rosalind Wong, and they had two children. Their son became a detective with the Beverly Hills Police Department named Sammy Lee II. 
I had a bad feeling about him, but she kept saying, no, he's a great guy. He drives a Testarossa and everything. So in 1993, Detective Sammy Lee II decides to set up a sting to bust Heidi Fleiss's operation. He gets a tip, probably from Alexandra Dadeg, that Heidi will be throwing a party that night at a place called the Rangoon Racket Club, a faux British colonial-themed club in Beverly Hills that's modeled after a British tennis club in Burma whose very offensive theme and overpriced bar food lasted from the 70s to the early 90s. Heidi is hanging out with some of her friends, including her old pal Jen Young at the Rangoon Club, when Sammy Lee and another officer crash her party undercover in character. Sammy Lee II poses as a Hawaiian-Japanese textile merchant named Nico Akai, who wants to set up himself and some Japanese businessmen friends with late-night entertainment from Heidi's girls. He brings the aforementioned Ferrari Testarossa, which is his own real personal car. We knew that she was having a function there, and we borrowed a Ferrari. People were having drinks, and then she was playing the hostess. There were probably six or seven girls. I basically was able to get her phone number that night and introduce myself as a businessman. And I kept it very generic, said maybe we can try to do business in the future, and that I'd like to call her. Detective Sammy Lee, Beverly Hills Police Department. Heidi takes the bait and gives Detective Lee her phone number. He calls and they set up an appointment at the Beverly Hilton Hotel to talk through the logistics. On June 8th, 1993... Heidi meets with Sammy Lee and one other investigator. Lee sets up a sting with audio and video recording equipment in a Beverly Hilton suite, then gets Heidi talking about her business, which, as we all know by now, is not very hard to do. In the history of this business, no one has ever been able to do what I did. I know 1% of the wealthiest people in the entire world. So maybe I'll meet 100 girls in two weeks, and I'll only pick one. Every girl I select has some quality or value about her that I think is different from the rest. A special kind of person. I have a fixed price, and no one is hustled, and no one is, like, crude. You won't find some, like, drugged-out freak coming in with her fingernails all dirty. I can't afford stuff like that because of the people I deal with. Basically... I have everything to perfection. You're more squared away than I am. And for 1500 what are we talking? We're talking everybody's going to have a good time. But, like, I'm not into this group sex and swapping and things like that. I tell people that I think condoms. I'm a firm believer in condoms. But what girls and guys do when I'm not in the room, I can't oversee everything. If you're not happy with someone in the first 15 minutes, if she offends you in any way or something about her strikes you as wrong, it's $100. Thank you. Go. So the arrangement is basically straight sex, but basically nothing bizarre. I don't want to see a llama coming through the house. No, 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 no. Nothing bizarre. And, you know, some guys like two girls to be together. Yeah, can that be arranged? Yeah, it's a normal man thing. A boy thing. As far as money exchanged, cash okay? Cash, cool. No yen. I know people who run countries and rule worlds. And they are so amorous leaving a business meeting that can change the world economy. God, that's bizarre. Men and women must be a whole different thing, like cats and dogs or something. 
Basically, that's how I see it. I think I just learned real quick because I learned it was something you have to get right or it's not going to work at all. I wish I had some competition. There are people all over town like these $200 or $300 madams who say they're my competition and they send their maid out on a job or something. You're going to get what you pay for. Do you have a preference in your type? Tell me about your dream girl. Um, probably around five foot eight, brunette, pretty slim, nice legs, nice butt. Okay, no problem, what time? The people I pick, I consider them my friends. Like we work together or we don't work at all. We have good chemistry. So how'd you like to work the money? Just give it to the girls, straight to the girls. I have to trust them because if there's no trust, it's not going to work. And if you're not happy with something, then just call me and I'll make sure it's all fixed. A date is set for a Heidi girl to come meet Nico Akai in his room that night. Heidi sends Samantha Burdett, a beautiful girl from a rich family in Colorado who became a model in Japan and dated head of the elite modeling agency John Casablancas and Guns N' Roses singer Axl Rose before she started working for Heidi. Samantha is beautiful, but she's a lost soul. Lee meets with Burdette and pays her $1,500. She strips down to her underwear, and according to the police report, Lee claims he suddenly has to run. He lets her keep the money and calls Heidi the next night to ask for another date with way more party favors. The next night, he asked for three more girls and two eight balls of cocaine. Then Charlie called me and said he wanted some coke as a favor. And another client asked for Mandrax, and I got them. I threw the Mandrax in the back of my car. A few days later, Sammy Lee brings three other Asian-American cops, including a Japanese-American detective named Steven Takeshita, and they all pose as Japanese businessmen with bad fake accents, speaking gibberish they hope the girls won't notice isn't Japanese. They meet with the four girls and pay $1,500 to each one for what they say will be some oral sex followed by straight sex. Kim Birch, a rookie on her first date, responds to one of the undercover cops speaking fake broken English, asking to do American thing, special thing, by saying, you mean like stand on my head or what? The entire scenario, which is videotaped and played later for jurors in court, sounds completely absurd. They ask the girls to strip for them, and as they get topless, a task force bursts in, placing all four of the girls under arrest. We had the girls in one big room, and once they started to address, then we called it. And the officers came in and arrested everyone. We arrested the girls, and we had another team at Heidi's house waiting to arrest her. That day, I went out in the sun. I was disturbed all day. I was on a sobriety kick. I had started going to the gym. I took a Soma, a muscle relaxer, but that day I was feeling really weird. Around 8.30, it was one of the clearest, most beautiful nights. They arrived. 20 cops and four dogs all at my house.
June 9th, 1993, 8.30 p.m. Heidi is wheeling out the trash cans to the curb in front of her Tower Grove mansion when she is confronted by 20 cops and four police dogs. She immediately cracks a joke about how this must be the reason Los Angeles is broke since they're spending all their money on her. She's not wrong. The police see some traveler's checks signed by Charlie Sheen, 13 grams of cocaine, a plastic baggie of Mandrax, which is an old type of sedative like a Quaalude, and the red Gucci notebooks that Heidi used in lieu of a black book. Beverly Hills Lieutenant Jim Smith says Heidi didn't flip out and was remarkably calm, even jovial. Heidi is charged with felony pimping, pandering, and narcotics. She is released on a $100,000 bail, which a bail bondsman puts up because Heidi hasn't saved anything, let alone $100,000. A 17-year-old girl found living in her house is booked as well. The four girls who were booked earlier that day by Sammy Lee flip on Heidi immediately and start telling the cops everything. As soon as the Heidi Fleiss story breaks in Los Angeles, every newspaper in town starts receiving phoned-in tips claiming to know the names of famous clients. The only names publicly associated with Fleiss at this point are people known to be her social friends, Billy Idol, who she met at On the Rocks, her friend Victoria Sellers, and music manager Elliot Mintz. Nobody has been confirmed as a John or a client, but the rumor mill continues. Columbia Pictures is alleged to have diverted funds meant for a Three Stooges movie towards what they call improper executive entertainment, and the heirs to the Three Stooges brand are demanding an investigation, possibly related as well to a Three Stooges merchandising deal they got screwed on by the studio. One name that keeps bobbing back up is Charlie Sheen, who allegedly likes his Heidi girls to dress as cheerleaders. Aside from not being old enough to be her father, Charlie Sheen is completely Heidi's type, possibly her male equal. Charlie Sheen is, once again, maybe you're getting tired of this, a second-generation child of Hollywood. He and Heidi are very similar. They have addictive personalities, a history of self-destructive behavior, are incredibly charismatic, and grew up in close-knit bohemian families in Los Angeles. Charlie Sheen's father, Martin Sheen, born Ramon Antonio Gerardo Estevez, is an anti-war leftist and a famous actor. In Demi Moore's autobiography, she talks about spending time at the Estevez Sheen house when she was dating Charlie's brother, Emilio, and being captivated by the warmth and intelligence of the family, in contrast to her own incredibly fucked up and fractured family dynamic. Charlie Sheen was born Carlos Erwin Estevez in New York in 1965, and shortly thereafter, the family moved to Malibu. Just like Heidi, Charlie Sheen also made Super 8 movies with his friends and family as a kid. His friends included fellow Santa Monica High students Rob Lowe and Sean Penn. Like Heidi, he came from an upper-class supportive family, but was drawn into the underworld of L.A., Charlie Sheen was brought into the industry by his father, Martin Sheen. His first role was an uncredited appearance in Terrence Malick's Badlands, starring Martin. Charlie Sheen was part of the 80s brat pack of young actors that also included his brother, Emilio Estevez. The brat pack included several handsome, burgeoning leading men whose screen persona was Angry Young Man. 
Sheen's breakout role was Red Dawn, the 1980s Red Scare fantasy about Russian forces descending on a small American town that has to fight back. From then on, he played the archetypal 1980s alpha male in a series of hit movies. As we learn more about the producers of the 80s, you can see why they felt like edgy, dark-haired, leonine, sexually charismatic Charlie Sheen was a perfect avatar for their idea of the ideal man. In 1985, Charlie Sheen stars in a Penelope Spears movie called The Boys Next Door, where he and Grease 2 star turned Rex Manning, Maxwell Caulfield, play proto-red-pilled spree killers who set out on a string of racist, misogynist, and homophobic murders around LA. This movie is fucking spine-chilling and should be screened for. It's also, hilariously, a total dry run for Wayne's World in that a lot of the scenes are focused on the two guys just driving around. Charlie Sheen then appears in Ferris Bueller's Day Off as the scariest, hottest guy you have ever seen in your life, where he hits on Ferris's sister, played by Jennifer Grey, giving maybe a lot of Jewish girls a complex for the rest of their lives. But his critical breakthrough is in Oliver Stone's Platoon in 1986. Oliver Stone uses Charlie Sheen's lineage of Vietnam movies, his father starred in Apocalypse Now, to make a movie drawing on his own experiences as a Vietnam vet, realizing that everything he'd been told was a lie. Like The Boys Next Door, Platoon uses the all-American-looking Sheen to critique American manhood, to show how male bravery and valiance are propaganda used to further American empire, how men are exploited by war and lose their souls to it, and how the empire's coffers depend on it. This is how Charlie Sheen functioned as an 80s A-list movie star, as a sort of walking commentary on masculinity. He played fucked-up, charming 80s men in Wall Street, another Oliver Stone mega-hit, and Major League, which showed that he could also do comedy. But when it came to his personal life, Charlie Sheen did not stick to the script that other people expected from him. Like the other Brat Pack bad boys, he was legitimately a loose cannon. The same wild energy that made him a star also made him a liability. Charlie's issues surface early on in his career, but he is carried by the sheer power of being a famous white man through one scandal after another. He impregnates his high school girlfriend who gives birth to their child. In 1990, he's engaged to the actress Kelly Preston when he accidentally shoots her in the arm and the engagement is called off. Charlie Sheen seems to have been a troubled person from the beginning, which doesn't excuse or absolve him from exhibiting a lot of awful, violent, and abusive behavior towards women over the years. Like many players in this story, he's haunted by the demons of addiction. However, him hiring and dating sex workers is not evidence that he's fucked up. It's actually the most charming thing about him. Despite being one of the most famous mainstream Hollywood leading men, Sheen dates some leading ladies from the other local film industry, the one in the San Fernando Valley. We had this relationship. It was fabulous. It was wonderful. The hardest part was attorneys and managers and agents and publicists and people saying, do this, don't do that. Ginger's going to ruin your career and that's not going to be good for you. Ginger Lynn Allen, adult film star. After Kelly Preston, Charlie Sheen dates Ginger Lynn Allen, 
a legendary adult star who worked behind and in front of the camera. Alan was as famous in porn in the early 80s as Sheen was in Hollywood. Alan starred in the hit adult film New Wave Hookers, which became controversial when it was revealed that one of its stars, Tracy Lords, had filmed it underage. It was re-edited to exclude Lords, whose scenes jeopardized the legality and legitimacy of the adult film industry. Lords was edited off the cover and replaced with Ginger Lynn Allen. And maybe the dating pool among actors is just really small, but I just wanted to point out that George Clooney also dated both Kelly Preston and Ginger Lynn Allen. After appearing as herself in Bachelor Party with Tom Hanks, Allen left porn in 1986 to try and make the jump to mainstream film. She appears in a small part in Young Guns 2 with Sheen and Estevez. In 1990, Ginger Lynn Allen and Charlie Sheen enter rehab together. He writes her love letters. I'm sitting in bed writing to you from my penthouse suite at the Hotel du Camp. The view up here is incredible. I can see the Eiffel Tower, Mount Rushmore, Niagara Falls, Riverfront Stadium, and I can see you as well which happens to be my favorite side of all. Charlie Sheen, actor. Sheen also dated adult actress Heather Hunter, an aspiring musician from the Bronx who was dancing at a club when porn star Hyapatia Lee, a.k.a. Vicky Lynch, suggested Hunter could make a lucrative career in adult films. Heather Hunter is mentioned in at least as many rap songs as Heidi Fleiss. She's in the video for Tupac's How Do You Want It with fellow porn icons Angel Kelly and Nina Hartley, and she is absolutely legendary, as well as one of the few black women who was able to become an A-list porn star in the very racist porn industry of the 80s and 90s. Back to Heidi. Heidi immediately denies to the LA Times that she is involved in prostitution, even though she already bragged about it once to Sean Hubler, who didn't name her in print. LAPD Captain Glenn Ackerman tells the press that Fleiss was the target of a months-long investigation that showed she was operating a highly sophisticated prostitution ring where a group of high-end call girls got paid $1,500 an hour in what Ackerman calls a milieu of money and, well, shall we say, power. One person who speaks out immediately to deny that he has bought any sex from Heidi is producer Robert Evans a super producer of the 1970s behind movies like The Godfather, Evans is now entering the twilight phase of his producing career. I'm the one guy in town who's never touched her and never seen any of her girls, and yet I'm the only one mentioned. Why? I don't know. Robert Evans, producer. The many powerful men in Los Angeles who hired Heidi and her girls start sweating bullets, worrying their names are going to leak to the press. According to the book Hit and Run, How John Peters and Peter Goober Took Sony for a Ride in Hollywood by Nancy Griffin and Kim Masters, Yvonne Naj and Heidi Fleiss are longtime Hollywood friends with Columbia Pictures president of production, who is one of the people most concerned he will get outed in the scandal. One rumor starts circulating claiming that Steve Roth, one of the producers of Columbia's huge recent bomb Last Action Hero, was a friend of Heidi who hired her girls as extras on the very over-budget film. 
Producer Robert Evans' name also gets mentioned in connection with Heidi, which he immediately and strenuously denies. Rumors circle that Paramount might use Heidi Gate as an excuse to dump Evans, who produced 70s blockbusters like The Godfather and The Sting, before a cocaine conviction in the 1980s. Evans has been back at Paramount for two years, but had decamped to Palm Springs to work on his autobiography, The Kid Stays in the Picture, neglecting his commitments to producing movies The Saint and The Phantom. Everything couldn't be on a more go level than it is now. My relationship with Paramount has never been better. In addition to his possible connection with the Heidi scandal, Evans has been connected to another scandal involving a company called Axiom Entertainment, defrauding private investors of $200 million, $1.2 million of which allegedly went to Evans. He's also already made one bomb for Paramount, the erotic thriller Sliver, which had Basic Instinct star Sharon Stone and screenwriter Joe Esterhaus, but none of Basic Instinct's success. Don Simpson calls Heidi and offers to pay off her legal bills if she keeps his name out of it, and she takes the money. In 1993 Hollywood, the greed-as-good 80s have supposedly given way to the more minimalist 90s, where consumption is just as conspicuous, but macrobiotic foods have replaced drugs. Hollywood's coke years are supposedly waning as being a raging drug addict starts to be seen as a liability, and everyone gets sober at the increasingly upscale rehab facilities in Malibu like promises, becoming addicted to expensive coffee instead of coke. But beneath the thin ecru linen veneer of the early 90s, vice still booms underground, and Heidi's business hasn't slowed as the decade changed over, not at all. Some agents even allegedly set up their often married clients with call girls to ensure they wouldn't get caught with their pants down publicly cheating with a random civilian floozy who could sell her story to the tabloids. In the early 90s, Hollywood claims to be cleaning house of the sexism, racism, and hedonism that has plagued its halls forever. But behind closed doors, things haven't changed. Columbia Pictures is still a boys' club, One anonymous employee describes it to the authors of Hit and Run like this, quote, When I think about Columbia, I think about all those tiny little men in tiny little jeans, high-fiving each other endlessly. I love that quote because I feel like it still applies to everything. (laughs) Heidi and Yvonne Naj are regulars at Columbia Pictures' own Michael Nathanson's holiday parties and football game viewings at his house where they supposedly stuck out like a sore thumb among the besuited executive dirtbags, although that seems besides the point. This fuels the speculation that Yvonne Naj hooked Nathanson and friends up with narcotics and Heidi girls. To get ahead of the Heidi Fleiss scandal potentially naming him, Michael Nathanson checks into a rehab facility in Marina Del Rey, claiming he developed an addiction to the painkiller Percodan after a jogging accident. But the war that Yvonne Naj and Heidi Fleiss are waging against each other will claim Michael Nathanson as its first casualty in the press. When the Heidi Fleiss story breaks in the public sphere, the first names to surface are Nathanson and Naj, and Nathanson attempts to sue two journalists working on the story for The Hollywood Reporter. 
The New York Post runs blind items about a certain studio being in hot water with Heidi, and the LA Times prints story after story about the Heidi Fleiss scandal, but no publication claims hard enough evidence to run any names. By August, no Johns have come forward or been named, and Heidi hasn't snitched. But this doesn't make the rich Johns any less paranoid. This rumor has gone to epic proportions, and it just isn't true. He never had anything to do with this woman, and obviously never did anything improper at Columbia, and has no knowledge of anyone else at Columbia who has had any dealings with this woman. Anthony Pelicano, private investigator. You always want to be on the right side of Anthony Pelicano. Michael Nathanson hires Anthony Pelicano, a private detective specializing in Hollywood shakedowns. He hired him four months earlier when the rumors first started circulating that Nathanson had set up fake development deals as fronts for buying sex and drugs. Pelicano advises Nathanson to issue a public denial, even though his name hasn't come up in the press. On August 3rd, Nathanson goes on the record through his lawyer, Howard Weitzman, saying he has no business or personal relationship with Heidi Fleiss and has not done anything that should cause concern on behalf of Columbia Pictures, with his lawyer using some very unfortunate wording about putting the rumors to bed. This brings out the Wolves to report on his statement. This is the first concrete evidence that some of the bigger Heidi rumors might be true, and the rumor mill starts churning off the hook. Suddenly, Nathanson's face is on the local news, associating himself and Columbia Pictures with the Heidi Fleiss scandal. Anthony Pelicano is another wild character, a scandal fixer for Hollywood people. He grew up with a single mom in Chicago and then came out west. Rich people put him on retainer to run wiretaps on people they want monitored, enemies, ex-wives, etc., Anthony Pelicano knows everyone in Los Angeles and all of their dirty secrets. He came to L.A. in the late 70s and set up shop after helping John DeLorean, the original seller of cars with suicide doors, fight charges of cocaine distribution. The Nathanson story is the biggest Hollywood scandal since David Begelman, who produced movies like Shampoo and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, was discovered siphoning money from Columbia Pictures. Fleiss supports Nathanson's claim that the two are merely social friends. Now, Nathanson had not run the denial statement by any of his studio bosses first. So while Nathanson denies it vehemently, bank records show that he wrote at least two personal checks to Yvonne Nage in 1980 and 1990, albeit for the relatively paltry amounts of $500 and $750, which just seemed very low considering the rumors of Heidi's girls commanding $5,000 for blowjobs at the peak. When Heidi World returns, the story of JJ, the king of beepers, and Cookie Orgad, the Israeli ecstasy kingpin of L.A., Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great too. With thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a chill mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. The Hyundai Santa Fe becomes available early 2024, so get on it now before all the good camping sites are full. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Welcome back to Heidi World. Hookers, oof, they have no life. Their only friends are other hookers. That's the club, and they live and die for the club. But you have to accept the club for what it is. To be a hooker, you have to accept that you're living a lie. You can only be yourself with the other working girls. The rest, the rest is a lie. Heidi talks to attorney Robert Shapiro, soon to become famous himself as a key player on O.J. Simpson's defense team. He tells Heidi that he heard Yvonne Naj is going down next. You're going to jail, you motherfucker. 
1993, as the scandal was breaking, Naj was trying to release Skinner, his low-budget horror movie that he directed about a serial killer named Dennis Skinner who preys on Skid Row prostitutes, starring Ted Raimi in the title role. On August 4th, Yvonne Naj and Julie Conister get busted. Not only has Yvonne Naj been running his own escort ring with Conister, he's been taking a percentage from every other working madam in town. Madam Alex says she calls him Mr. 20% for his cut-taking tendencies. Yvonne Naj is parking his white Mercedes-Benz outside a cafe on La Cienega when the cops arrive for him with his own pandering charges. Heidi is absolutely thrilled. I don't care what kind of trouble I'm in, I'm going out tonight. The dynamic between Alex, Yvonne, and Heidi is hard to describe. They're like a bunch of jackals, all feeding off the same carcass. Fred Clapp, LAPD detective. Yvonne Naj and Julie Conister were probably busted because of a wiretap tape where they discussed specifics of their plan to run an escort service and cut out Heidi. That tape was provided to Heidi by an ex-associate of Yvonne Naj, an Israeli drug dealer named Jacob Orgad, who goes by the nickname Cookie. Allegedly, Heidi may have leaked it to the police in order to help pin Yvonne Naj with a pandering charge. Jacob Cookie Orgad becomes part of the public story in August when he's linked to the death of a 22-year-old girl named Lori Dolan earlier that year in March. Lori Dolan died of an overdose of cocaine, morphine, and codeine at Cookie's West Hollywood condo. Because he has a known connection to Heidi, the press starts speculating that Lori Dolan was one of Heidi's girls. Cookie Orgad is an Israeli ecstasy kingpin who, allegedly, employs Hasidic Jewish teenagers as drug mules and couriers. He also was part of an electronics store called J&J Imports with a guy named Judah Alza. Alza and Orgad dissolved the partnership, and Alza went on to run a successful pager and electronics store called J&J Beeper, whose billboards show him wearing a king's crown and robe, surrounded by bikini girls. In one, a lingerie-clad girl straddles a giant beeper. I'm JJ, and I'm the king of beepers. JJ, king of beepers, a.k.a. Judah Alset. Cookie Orgad was supposedly just a small-time Coke dealer until Heidi Fleiss came in to buy a big-screen TV from him one day. Cookie brought the TV to Heidi's Tower Grove estate, and from there he became part of the operation working as Heidi's new enforcer. Heidi told everybody that Cookie was in Mossad, which he wasn't, but it scared people into complying. Cookie also became Heidi's main recruiter of new talent. He made himself useful and got a kickback for recruits. Cookie Orgad moved up the ranks of drug dealing as well, becoming a major player in the burgeoning ecstasy trade. He moved out of his shitty apartment into a swanky 12th floor high rise in West Hollywood. While Cookie Orgad might not have been Mossad, he was looped in with some Israeli mob families who were smuggling MDMA tablets from labs in the Netherlands and Belgium to Los Angeles using a pre-existing model they'd set up to smuggle diamonds this way. Ecstasy tablets were sewn into the shoulder pads of women's jackets and shipped overseas. Hai Waknine, an Israeli-American racketeer from Van Nuys, and Cookie Orgad were both getting the ecstasy from the same supplier, 
an Israeli mob boss known as Itzhak Big Friend Abergil, sometimes called the Man from the South. I had a lot of enemies. Sometimes I needed to find out something about a girl, and he'd help me. Lori Dolan was a young party girl from the San Fernando Valley, in many ways a carbon copy of Heidi from a few years prior. Dolan waitressed at the Sagebrush Cantina in Calabasas and started running with a fast crowd that liked to go clubbing and do hard drugs. On the night of her death, Dolan went to a club that Heidi also frequented called Tattoo and called her dad, whose name is coincidentally the same as Heidi's dad, Paul. She told Paul Dolan she was going out late with friends but would be fine. They went to Bar One next, which Cookie co-owned, and Cookie showered his guests with buckets of expensive champagne. Then everyone went back to Cookie's place in West Hollywood, where Lori Dolan did the fatal cocaine cut with heroin. Her so-called friends freaked out when everyone woke up hungover the next morning except Lori, who didn't wake up. So they didn't take her to the ER until 5 p.m. that day, where she was pronounced brain dead. Three days later, her family took her off life support. Then, the connection between Cookie, Yvonne Naj, and Heidi Fleiss was reported, and suddenly Lori Dolan was being dragged into the Heidi scandal as well. The media loved this angle because it played into their narrative that sex work led to automatic ruin for anyone who so much as dabbles. The LAPD even declared that the investigation would now look into whether Lori Dolan was a Heidi associate. The problem was that it wasn't true. The only clear connection between Heidi and Lori Dolan was that they ran in overlapping circles, frequented the same clubs, and bought drugs from the same dealer. But the news cycle ran with the story anyway, because everyone was now waiting with bated breath for more salacious news to emerge from the Heidi news cyclone. Whether Lori Dolan was or wasn't a Heidi girl hardly mattered to the LA Times. They had already written the copy. High school girl gone bad, sucked into a world of drugs and prostitution, leading right to death. Cookie bails town after the story breaks, and JJ the Beeper King takes his beeper empire to Las Vegas. After busting Yvonne and Julie Conister, the cops also bust another Westside escort service run by two women named Thomasina Esformis and Alicia Radke in an attempt to make a big show of force of cracking down on vice, particularly prostitution, after the embarrassment of Heidi Fleiss running her empire right under their complicit noses was made public. LAPD's administrative vice captain Glenn Ackerman says they are waging a full-scale war on organized commercial prostitution on LA's west side, adding, there will be further shoes to fall, a warning to some of the big money rustlers whose names had not come out. Yvonne Naj, out on bail for his own pandering charges, retaliates against Heidi by leaking what he alleges is a stolen page from the Black Book to the New York Post. It runs on August 6th and introduces a couple of new names to the public. It quote Barry with a phone number that leads to producer Barry Josephson's office and a Canton, which is allegedly probably Mark Canton, who did Last Action Hero as head of Columbia. Heidi tells the press that the page was stolen from her against her will and doctored before going to print. It's just an old calendar, she says. My battle isn't going to be in the media. My battle is going to be in court. Columbia Pictures' parent company Sony gets dragged into the scandal. 
Sony higher-up Michael Mickey Schulhoff rounds up everyone powerful at the company in his office one at a time and tells them they'll be protected if they confess or destroyed if they try to keep any information they have about Heidi Fleiss and Columbia from him. Sony Columbia make no public statement, but the story spreads through legitimate magazines as well as tabloids like Wildfire. While the tabloids and newspapers openly name Sony and Columbia Pictures as the center of the Heidi Fly sex scandal storm, the studio decides they will attempt to just wait it out. Peter Goober, who runs Sony, demands Nathanson's head on a platter. A previously planned corporate retreat becomes a Sony brand strategizing session where the decision comes down that they will demote Nathanson to the do-nothing job of vice president and appoint Lisa Henson, a 33-year-old Warner Brothers executive who is the daughter of legendary puppeteer Jim Henson, as the new head of production at Columbia. This decision had supposedly been in the works pre-scandal, but the optics were clear. Nathanson would be punished for sullying the studio's name and reputation and he would be replaced with a woman with clear ties to a clean-cut, family-oriented brand, Jim Henson's Muppets. The studio orders an internal investigation to cut all the scandal-tainted weight, dropping and blacklisting Yvonne Naj, just as Heidi had hoped they would, even though his pandering charges don't actually stick. They do a budget audit of recent films like Last Action Hero looking for suspicious expenditures, The public announcement is made that Lisa Henson will replace Nathanson. According to Heidi, Barry Josephson and Michael Nathanson were not the biggest culprits by any means. They were punished to protect other people higher up at Sony who were involved with Heidi. People like, allegedly, John Peters. Barry and Michael were fall guys, big time. They were both innocent. But they were practically the only ones who were, and not just at Columbia at every studio. Heidi is out on bail, awaiting her court hearing Monday. She hires a lawyer named Anthony Brookliar. More on him later. Her lawyer says Heidi has been flooded with offers for book and screenplay deals while she awaits her first hearing. There's a rumor that a rich Italian man wants to buy Heidi's house from her. Newspapers make reference to leaked recordings that have two high-profile producers offering to pay for Heidi's legal bills, but they never name the producers in question. Heidi tells a reporter she'll sell her story to Hollywood for a cool million. Anthony Pelicano continues to deny that Nathanson paid flights for call girls, but admits that Yvonne Naj did once have a deal in 1992 with Columbia for a movie with Brad Wyman producing called Twice Seduced. Pelicano claims the development deal had been kiboshed and the movie put in turnaround. This would mean that Yvonne Naj never received any money from the studio at all, let alone money that would have been in compensation for drugs and escort services. I have no involvement in any escort services. No gambling. It's an out-and-out lie. These are vicious, vindictive people. Naj is let out on a $25,000 bail and claims complete innocence. He says, other than a 1991 bookmaking charge he pled no contest to, he is a perfect angel who has never so much as set foot outside the law. Heidi Fleiss is just trying to drag him into her own dirty laundry. Madame Alex is overjoyed that Heidi is suffering consequences and offers to help the police. The tapes are going to be important. Anthony Brooklier, 
attorney at law. A private investigator and FBI informant named Dan Hanks has mysterious access to a tape of calls wiretapped directly from Heidi's phone. Hanks says he thought he could catch Heidi with someone famous and sell photos to one of the tabloid news magazine shows like A Current Affair. Instead, he ends up with these Heidi tapes of unknown origin. Hanks claims that he didn't tap the calls himself, but that they mentioned some prominent names. Some reporters hear the tape, but no one has the cojones to actually publish the contents, which may have been obtained extra-legally. Heidi buys the tape herself to use as part of her defense. There are some tidbits about these phantom tapes in a 2004 book written by uh, Andrew Breitbart called Insanity Chic in Babylon, The Case Against Celebrity. Now look... The margins between, like, TMZ and the far right are razor thin. I do not vouch for anything Andrew Breitbart says ever, obviously, but in this book, he claims that a tape existed of Robert Evans and Heidi Fleiss talking about an underage girl who Evans wanted to order from Heidi, referred to in the alleged recordings as, quote, the little girl. Ew. The book claims that Hanks bugged the recordings to sell them to a tabloid, but then sold them to Heidi instead. Some people think the cops were bugging Heidi themselves and that Hanks was working with them or just hacked the feed. It's obviously possible that Heidi was also bugging her own clients in case she needed blackmail. The cops didn't find the tape at Heidi's house during their police sting because Heidi had cleverly hidden it in a VHS box for Shirley Temple's 1937 movie, Heidi. While her famous clients are eager to run away from her in public, they all reach out to her behind the scenes. Heidi hears from a laundry list of former clients, rock impresarios, financiers, A-list actors, producers, directors, and real estate heirs all of whom are eager to express fealty and frustration over Heidi's turn in fortunes. All of them are trying their hardest to stay on Heidi Fleiss's good side, should she be tempted to start ratting out her powerful clientele. I have warned her, you cannot mention John's, not even privately. It ruins careers. Alex Fleming, madam. A Heidi girl using a pseudonym tells the LA Times she was recruited outside a check-cashing office on Hollywood Boulevard by a man claiming to be a photographer who was actually a talent scout for Heidi. A year later, the girl, who goes by Karen in the story, was desperate to move out of her mom's apartment and called Heidi, who sent her to London on assignment. Karen tells of middle-aged men and elderly sheiks who pay for her company at fight nights in Vegas and steak dinners at Morton's. She recalls being gifted to a famous young actor at his birthday party whose name might rhyme with Barley Bean. Then she quits. But that doesn't fit the LAPD's narrative where prostitution is always dehumanizing and always life-ruining. Another name comes out of one of the girls who was part of the Beverly Hilton bust, Brandy McLean. Brandy starts talking to the press immediately. I realized it was illegal, but I never thought anything could happen to me. Brandy McLean. Heidi's habit of spending more than she makes finally comes around to get her, as she has no real assets when she's arrested besides the house. 
Most of the money has seemingly gone towards drugs, clothes, and lavish partying at the mansion where the rest of the money went. Also, the Tower Grove mansion is technically owned by her father, Paul Fleiss, who co-signed. This brings Paul Fleiss, the mild-mannered pediatrician, into a burgeoning IRS investigation into Heidi's finances. My parents were very supportive and left real nice messages on my answering machine, but I just told them to stay away. The mounting stress of getting her father involved, letting down the girls who trusted her, and the realization that she might really be in big fucking trouble now causes Heidi to feel crushing, intense, all-encompassing guilt, but also anger at those who betrayed her and fear at what might happen. Heidi has talked her way all to the top, only to hit a brick wall that she probably cannot talk her way out of. I've been bankrupted. I have no money. None. Heidi's streams of income have been cut off at the moment that she suddenly needs a robust amount of savings to pay for lawyers. But Heidi Fleiss's name and brand have become cultural currency. Her name now, more than ever, carries cachet. But her life is hell. Four of her employees have flipped on her after the bust and are ratting her out to the cops. Late night hosts and magazine headlines make every conceivable Heidi pun. Heidi Ho jokes about Wendy Wasserstein's play, The Heidi Chronicles, which was coincidentally running in L.A. rep theaters at the time the Heidi Fleiss story broke, leading me personally to wrongly believe it was a play about Heidi Fleiss until I finally read it and found out it's about feminism in the 70s and 80s. Heidi is saturating the news cycle, and the glamorous, high-rolling myth of the Heidi girls has surpassed even the reality. But Heidi Fleiss herself isn't making any money off of it. Yet. Next time on Heidi World. Heidi's high-end escort empire comes crashing down around her in front of the entire world when the Los Angeles and Beverly Hills police departments decide to team up to make a big show of busting her because she refuses to play the game and bribe them. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. 
Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places.